Good afternoon. Welcome to Revelation Bible Study. We are in chapter 19. I was looking on the calendar earlier today. This is the 30th week. Now, we've missed a few of those weeks, and, and of course, we didn't have a Bible study for Thanksgiving and the week before, but 30 weeks ago, we started this journey, and we are in chapter 19. Nothing happens. We should be finishing up in the next few weeks, but hopefully you've gotten a, a little bit better understanding if you haven't, I apologize, but uh, Revelation is not one that you can just open up and say, oh, well, this is what it means. But most people understand that. If you've missed any of these sessions, if you will, one of these weeks or whatever, you can go to YouTube and you can look up the channel of Trinity Word Ministry and all of these are there on YouTube. So you'll be able to get those as well. But let's get started in chapter 19, but before we do, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity again to come into your throne room, Lord, to discuss and to, Lord, to study your word together, Lord. We ask that you'll move and that you'll stretch forth your hand here tonight, Lord, that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message and, Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Chapter 19, verse 1. And, and after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God. After what things? After the destruction of Babylon, there was a great multitude of people in heaven that was heard by John praising God for the judgment of Babylon that led to its downfall and destruction. The people were rejoicing that Babylon had fallen and could no longer persecute the Christians. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood, <coughs> excuse me, of his servants at her hand. The people are not only praising God, but are also confirming that God was righteous in his judgments against the city of Babylon. Now, if you just picked up the word, and, or if you just picked up in the middle of the destruction of Babylon, you might not understand why he is destroying it and why he is justified in destroying it, but understand that everything that God does, he is justified in doing it was the idolatry, it was the sin of disobedience, it was the persecution of the Christians, it was a lot of things that led up to the, to the downfall of Babylon. God just doesn't get mad one day. He could, and he'd be rightfully justified in doing it, but he doesn't get mad and just destroy people. It takes a little bit to get him going, to get him mad, and Babylon had, had crossed those boundaries, if you will. Babylon's sin had reached worldwide and was was deserving of the swift judgment and justice that befell on it. So it wasn't just contained in, in within the city, but it was widespread. It had affected the whole world. It was it was like a virus. It was like a plague that had affected everyone. And again, they said, "Hallelujah!" And her smoke rose up forever and ever. 
The word hallelujah, translated here as hallelujah, is found four times in the New Testament, and those times are in Revelation. The burning of the destroyed Babylon rose into the air for a very long time. The city was large, and there was a lot of material in the city that was combustible. So the smoke from the destruction was thick. But it also signifies that the punishment of the wicked is eternal. Because it says the smoke rose forever and ever. It is an eternal punishment to the wicked. You can avoid all of this. All you have to do is accept what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary, what he did for you on the cross of Calvary, and ask his forgiveness. And once you do that, you you can avoid all of this destruction. <coughs> Excuse me again. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. The 24 elders that surrounds the throne of God also proclaim hallelujah, and they fall and worship God. We first read about the 24 elders as early as chapter 4 of Revelation, and I will just do a brief little summary of it. If you remember all the way back, chapter 4, where we was first introduced to the 4 and 20 elders, we understood that from First Chronicles, David had divided the sons of Aaron up into 24 units or 24 divisions. So what happens here on this earth mirrors what happens up in heaven. Those 24 divisions, those 24 separations or units, if you will, they each had a specific job to do. So this represents the 24 elders that are around the throne of God. Some will say, again, that these 24 elders are the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, disciples, but John is t relating the story to us, and the there's no empty seat around the throne. So it's not the twenty four that's the twelve disciples and the twelve tribes of Israel, because John wasn't in heaven all of the time. We know that God is never changing. He is always constant. So these 24 elders, they've always been there. And they represent the divisions of David or what David had done for the priest and for the tribes of Aaron. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. An angel, apparently from around God's throne, commands the servants of God and those that fear the Lord to sing praises and worship God. The angel does not reject any that serves God, but instead he commands the small and the great, or also the young and the old, to sing praises to God. It does not matter how old you are. It does not matter how young you are. It does not matter if you're rich or if you're poor or if you're homeless or you live in a mansion. God is not a respecter of what we have. He is a respecter of what we have done. And if we have done and accepted what he did for us on the cross of Calvary, we can't do anything other than that. And that's acceptance of the cross of Calvary. If we have done that, if we have performed that, if we have if we lived that, 
then he will respect us. He will look upon us with favor. He will look upon us as children of his. If we have not done that, yes, he loved us enough that he sent his only begotten son to die for us on the cross of Calvary. But if we have not accepted what he did for us on the cross of Calvary, that's where his love stops. There are no benefits to being here on this earth or being in in God if we have not accepted Christ. If we have accepted Christ, the benefit is we are a child of the king. I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Note the praise changes direction. It is no longer for what has happened, but for what is about to happen. The multitude praises God for his omnipotence or for his power and authority. The event that all Christians have waited on will soon take place. And there are so loud or there are so many voices crying out at the same time. It is as of the roar of water or the voice of thunders. It is loud. But again, we've heard this phrase throughout our study of Revelation, but we also understand that it's not just a boom or it's not just a huge roar. It's discernible, but it is loud and it is a powerful. Uh, stand at the base of a waterfall, Niagara, if you will, and listen to the roar of the water. It's hard to hear over the roar of the water. It's hard to have a conversation there near the waterfall or get into a significant and severe thunderstorm and the roll of the thunder just continues to peel off and it just it's hard to hear anything other than what the roar of the thunder is but this is a voice or these are voices that are joining in unison and there's power behind it and it is loud but it is discernible Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. This is what all of earth, <coughs> all of the Christians on earth has been waiting for, the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of Christ to his bride, the church. The church, the people in the building will be joined to Christ as one forever. This relationship with the church or the bride of Christ and Christ make a complete picture. The Christians become whole with Christ through Christ. We are taken to heaven to live and reign forever with Christ and we get to serve with Christ throughout the rest of eternity. He uses the, the symbolic gesture or symbolic vision of a marriage is when one and one becomes one. It's not one and one becomes two. It's one and one becomes one at that marriage. So when he's talking about the marriage of the, of the lamb or the marriage of Christ in the church, it's not a marriage as we know it, but it's the coming together as one. It's coming together. Christ is one. The church is one, and we become one. It's not, though, as we were standing in front of a preacher, or in my wife and I's case, two preachers. Yeah, it took two of them to get us married. 
but it's not us standing there in front of a preacher and then consummating the marriage afterwards. It's just the union of Christ with the, the church. I've actually heard ministers get into arguments over this, and I won't get into the details of the argument, but don't look at this marriage of Christ to the church as a marriage here on this earth. It's just that he uses that symbolic, symbolically to tell us that we become one. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Linen was the material to make the clothes that a priest would wear under their priestly garments. The linen was used because it has a natural tendency to keep a person cool. So the priests would not sweat as much as they were doing the business of the temple. Ezekiel 44 and 18. They shall have their linen bonnets upon their heads and shall have linen breeches upon their loins. And they shall not gird themselves with anything that causeth sweat. So linen is a cool material. It wicks away the moisture, if you will, and helps keep the body cool. But it's also a symbolic separation between man's carnal or fleshly thoughts and ideas in God's heavenly garments, the robes of the priest. So between the heavenly garments or the robes of the priest and us was linen. It was that separation. If you will, you can look at it basically as the veil between the holy of holies. It separated the world from the the high priestess world, the the world being the carnal, the world being the everyday, the the normal day to day activities. They would have to go behind the veil. And that veil kept the world out of the Holy of Holies. So you can look at the linen as the veil. Now, the veil was torn, rent in two at the when Christ died on the cross of Calvary, the earthquake. Because we no longer need that separation. We no longer need that, that keeping us from Jesus. We can go to Jesus. We can go to the, we can go to God now for ourselves. We don't need the high priest to do it for us. Not the high priest of earth anyway. So the, the linens that the church was going to be dressed in is the white robes that we hear all about and, and you know, we see in the movies and stuff. It's the white robes. It represents the purity. The glorified body is arrayed in white linen to symbolize the washing away of the sins by the shed blood of Christ. An interesting side note, linen is plant-based. It is made from the fibers inside the flax plant. The flax was often placed on the roofs of houses to dry it out and bleach it out in the sun in order to make the linen. Yes, I am going somewhere with this. It was flax that Rahab the prostitute hid the two spies under when the soldiers of Jericho was looking for them, Joshua Two and six. The two spies were hid under flax used to make linen to separate them from the evil roof, Jericho, and the deliverance of God. Now I find that quite interesting, if you will. She literally hid them under flax that was going to be made to use linen, and linen is that separation between the earth and, and, and God, if you will. 
So they were being separated. They were being covered even back then in the Old Testament by something that symbolizes the church or the cross of Calvary, if you will. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. All that are invited to the marriage supper, the great feast that commemorates the marriage of Christ to the church, are indeed blessed. To receive the invitation to sit at the table is the ultimate, I have arrived. We have not arrived until then, but once that table is spread and we sit down in our place, nothing can harm or hurt us any longer. Now, if you will, you can also look at it as we don't provide the garments. The king never provided the or The people never provided the garments if they were invited to a dignitary's wedding or if they were invited to the king's daughter, son's wedding, whatever. The king provided those garments. And we see in one of the uh, scriptures that Jesus was telling, some of the parables, that you know the king had invited all these people and he went out and he saw that one person wasn't in the robes, wasn't in the king's garments, wasn't in the the right outfit. And so he kicks him out. And we all, you know, if you jump into the middle of that story, you go, wow, that's horrible. But you got to understand that that individual that was kicked out had been provided the garment. They just didn't take the time to put it on. They were lazy. We have been provided the garment to get to heaven. It's the blood of Christ. We've got to apply it by accepting what he done. Are we that lazy that we will not even do that? Verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As John attempted to worship the angel, the angel stopped him. All praise and honor and worship belongs to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not to the angels. The true angels throughout the scriptures prevented men from worshiping them. However, Satan encouraged even Jesus to worship him. But Christ refused and used the word of God, the scriptures, to rebuke Satan. Now you go back and you read the Bible and you see where all these angels appears. You can see Christ in the Old Testament because he doesn't stop the individuals from falling down and worshiping him. The three men that appeared in the plains in front of Abraham. Abraham went out, fell at their feet. Jesus was one of those three. The other two were just angels. So go back and, and study the Old Testament. You can see Christ throughout the Old Testament because of that feature. They will, if it's a true angel, he will stop the worship. But if it is Christ incarnate, you'll see that, that worship is allowed. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Uh-oh, here it comes. Here is what the world is afraid of, but yet they don't know that they're afraid of it. Heaven opened and behold a white horse. 
Heaven revealed Christ on a white horse going to fight the final battle with Satan. Any time in the old days, medieval days or whatever, when you saw the king riding on a horse, he was going out for war or he was coming back from war. If he was on a donkey, that was representation of peace. He would go in peace. But if he was on a horse, he was going out to war. Christ is on a white horse. He's going out to war. This is not the horse of the apocalypse because that was the Antichrist that rode that horse. It was, in fact, Jesus that rode this horse and he went out to destroy Satan and his army in a final battle. Truly the war to end all wars. Verse 12, his eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Now, a lot of people kind of gloss over verse 12, but verse 12 is very important. His eyes had the fire of judgment and righteous indignation coming from them. He is true and just, and once he sets off to destroy sin and Satan, there is no turning him back. What he has started, he will make a quick end. He was wearing many crowns, representing his authority and kingship over the earth and all that is on the earth. But what about this? He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. His name that no one knows but himself is another way of saying he is indescribable. Words of man do not do him justice. We cannot fully understand nor can we fully articulate who Christ is. I know what Christ done for me in my, in my life. I know that. I can tell you that. But I still don't even understand all of the intricacies of Christ. And because I can't put words to it, that's why he says he has a name that no one knew but himself. We cannot understand. We cannot fathom the love that Christ has for us, nor can we understand and fathom his authority and his power. Verse 13, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John 1 and 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. Jesus was just made, the Word was just made flesh when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And I don't think it's ironic, nor do I think it's coincidence, that we have just come through the Christmas season and we are really talking about the final battle. I don't think that, I believe this is all being God-ordained. And I wish I could have done a much better job doing the scriptures, uh, the study, than what has been done, but it gives you a basis to build from. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Since he is... He is coming in a robe dipped in blood. It signifies that he's coming back also as a judge. A righteous judge who, when confronting Satan and his army, will rightly judge and execute the final judgment. So you can look at him as the judge and the jury, if you will. But understand that he's not going to be swayed. He's going to know right from wrong, truth will be revealed to him. He will know who's on his side and who is not on his side. You can see there are some people in prison that don't deserve to be in prison. 
because man can be swayed, can be deceived, can be bought. Christ cannot be bought, he cannot be deceived, and he cannot be swayed. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Armies? <coughs> Does he need us? No. We get to be a spectator at this one. The army of the Lord, those that have made it to heaven, the true Christians, will be following Christ and we will be all riding white horses. This is the second coming of Christ. Considering his first coming was when he was born in Bethlehem. And now this is considered his second coming since he comes to earth. In the rapture, he meets the Christians in the air. He never comes to earth during the rapture. He never steps foot on the earth during the rapture. But this time, he's down here on, on the ground. He's got boots on ground, if, you, if you'll allow me to use that military expression. Note that Christ, as the good shepherd, leads his flock. Here also Christ, the commander, leads his army to battle. He's not directing it from the rear. He is leading it from the front. His army is also wearing fine linen. Linen is what the priest undergarments were made from. And since this linen is white, it represents the armies being washed in the blood of Christ, their salvation. And it represents their purity. But understand, it's not my purity. It's not your purity. It's Christ's purity is covering us. It is our garment. Verse 15, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that which he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God. From Christ's mouth goes a sharp sword. Hebrews 4 and 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a two-edged sword, so it can cut both ways. It cuts going and it cuts coming back. It cuts on the top, it cuts on the bottom, it cuts on the sides. It cuts. However the sword is held, two-edged sword cuts two, two different ways. Christ is the Word, according to the first chapter of John. He speaks the Word, and before him the nations falls. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he spoke, I am he. John 18, verses 5 and 6, they answered him, saying, Jesus of the Nazareth. He's asked them who they've come for. They answered him, saying, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. The word of the Lord is powerful. And he was able to knock the feet or knock them off of their feet in the Garden of Gethsemane just by saying, I am Jesus. When Christ speaks, the enemies will either flee or fall. And in the end, the enemies will be destroyed. In the final battle, literally, the war to end all wars. World War I was claimed to be the war to end all wars. Well, you know, that didn't work because we had World War II shortly thereafter. And then, of course, we had Korea and then Vietnam and all of the wars up until now. 
This one is the war to end all wars. Now there is another, I won't say it's a battle, but there's another gathering of the forces, the enemy forces later on, a thousand years later on. But this is the last battle. Because as they're, I won't, I won't spoil it for you, but as they are gathering, something happens. Verse 16, and he hath on his vesture, on his thigh, name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. On his garments is written two of his titles, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will come back as the Lord and King of all nations and all people. Whether we believe Israel or not, he will return. In the aftermath of the war, the enemies of God will be destroyed finally and forever. <clears throat> and again, I will tell you that there is another gathering, but it's not a war. Verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all of the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather their, yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Now this may gross you out, if you will, if you've never read the scripture. But this angel is standing in the sunlight, and with a loud voice he's calling to all the birds of the air from everywhere, the vultures, the birds of prey, and he's calling them to the battle site for one particular purpose. There will be so many dead, you will not be able to bury them all. So God's going to use animals to help take care of the problem. An angel summons the birds to the battle site. They are there for one particular purpose, that is to eat the dead soldiers of the enemy's army. There will be so many people and animals destroyed that there will be no way to bury all of them. So God has the birds to come and eat the dead so the land does not stink. That's how many people is going to be killed at this battle. And that should break our hearts. To know that there's that many people that is going to stand against Christ when they don't have to. All they have to do is accept what Christ has done for them on the cross of Calvary. Verse 18, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small. And great. The birds will eat all of the dead. It will not matter the rank or position on earth. They will be destroyed just as the animals are. This will be the only way to dispose of all of the dead. There will be so many. We only think we've had horrific times. We only think that we've seen bloodshed. This is going to be horrible. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Note, he says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. He doesn't see Satan. 
Satan's not here. The Antichrist is here, but Satan isn't. John spiritually sees the vast army of the enemy as well as the beast, the Antichrist, the vast number of national leaders or the kings, and all the army that is positioned against Christ and his army. As far as John could see, he saw people. The enemy was huge and he had a lot of people in the army. Christ and his army was also large. But at the start of the battle, something awesome happens. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet. Now, he didn't see the false prophet here, but more than likely the false prophet is there, egging the zone. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. At the start of the battle, the Antichrist and the false prophet was taken and thrown into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Brimstone means burning stone, and it's simply sulfur. In Genesis 19 and 24, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And in and around where Sodom and Gomorrah is at, <coughs> or where we believe it to be at, you can find large deposits of sulfur in the ground, even to this day. Sulfur has a melting point of 239 degrees Fahrenheit and will catch fire around 335 degrees Fahrenheit. This lake, which by the way is a very real place, will be on this earth, which is burning, will be at least 335 degrees Fahrenheit or greater when the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into it. Now you go, wow, that's a little too much science. Just realize that you don't want to stick your hand into a burning pot of sulfur. You won't have any flesh left when you pull it back. It's going to be that hot. But it's not as hot as it could be. It's hot, but it's not as hot as you'd think it would be. Verse 21, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The beast and the false prophets thrown into the lake of fire, and his army is destroyed by the sword of him that sat upon the horse. It doesn't say that his army gets involved. Not one time does it say the army of God gets involved. It says that him that sat on the horse, the sword that came out, the word of the Lord came out and destroys the enemy. We're there as spectators. We're there to watch. I don't believe that as a army of Christ, he doesn't need us to fight in this battle. We're just there. He didn't have to bring us. He could have just went out on his own and destroyed him. But for whatever reason, he had the army there. Now, some will tell you that this will take this military excursion. This, you know, will take weeks. I don't know. The scriptures doesn't tell us how long this battle takes. I don't think it takes weeks. I think it happens in no time. I think it's just he speaks the word and everybody dies to be perfectly honest with you. Now, I think it takes weeks for the birds to take care of the product or the reason why that they are there. The rest of the army is now killed. The birds that have been watching and waiting, they can now do what they're called to do. Now, that will take weeks. But the battle, 
I think it's over with just a few words. And I think those few words are, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. I realize that that's what he will say when we go into or try to get into heaven if he doesn't know us. That's what the scriptures tells us. But who's to say that that's not what he will say here on this battle? Maybe he just says, be gone. We don't know what he says, and we don't know how long it takes, but I don't think it takes forever. I don't think it takes weeks like some scholars believe. I think it happens rather quickly. Now, as I said, the birds takes a little while to do what they're called to do. We will take up in chapter 20 next Thursday, and then uh, we will probably, if the Lord allows us to, we will probably be through with uh, the Revelation study in about three weeks. It makes it about the middle of January. Again, I appreciate everybody sticking around and, and going through this with us. If you have any questions, please put it out on Facebook. Uh, if you missed any that you would like to go back and rewatch, you're welcome to go back to the YouTube channel, and that's Trinity Word Ministry. All of these videos are out there. You can also find them on Trinity Word Ministry Facebook page. You can find them on my Facebook page where you're watching right now. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life and for allowing us the opportunity once again to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name, Lord. We ask that you'll move and that you'll touch on each and every one that is watching, each and every one that will watch, Lord. We ask that you'll enlarge this territory, Lord, not for my sake, but Lord, for the, your sake, for the, the kingdom's sake, for getting the word out to the to anyone and everyone that you'd wish them to have. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. We will see you guys next Thursday night.